0: This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to atomicbooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. We're excited to let you know about a few upcoming Essential Tremors Presents events. First, on Tuesday, May 24th at 1801 Bar in Upper Fells Point here in Baltimore, we'll have the first in our Selector series, in which a guest selector will choose a record of importance to them, introduce it, then lead a deep listening of a vinyl pressing of it. Tickets and more information are available at EssentialPodcast.com. Also from Essential Tremors Presents, our annual Seventh Stay Nine Festival in D.C. on Saturday, June 18th. This year's D.C. edition will feature 12 artists and three DJs spread over 10 hours at Metro Bar. Get tickets and more information at SeventhStayNine.com or at EssentialPodcast.com. Lastly, Essential Tremors presents Seventh Stay Nine Festival Milwaukee on Saturday, July 30th. Our inaugural Milwaukee version of the festival will feature 14 bands and run from one in the afternoon until midnight at Cactus Club. Get tickets and more information at 7 com or essentialpodcast.com.
1: So, and then, and, then, and then, as I say, like, to think about a song you know there's a moment that you hear a song but that moment is is the moment and then it's longer and then ideally well a song that really does change your life is one that changes your life in multiple ways.
0: This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them, songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general.
1: Tell me you don't love me Well, I don't Love you You say that you don't want me Well, I don't Want you You tell me there are Other Fish in the sea And another
0: Will Oldham, probably best known by the name Bonnie Prince Billy, as well as by the monikers Palace Brothers, Palace Songs, or just Palace, has been a deeply influential figure in American underground music since first appearing on the scene in the early 1990s. One of the best known and most respected songwriters to emerge from Chicago's Drag City label with the primitive bare-bones folk of his first record There Is No One What Will Take Care of You. Oldham's work has since evolved into very different territory growing into a vast catalog that ranges from solo records to collaborations with Smog's Bill Callahan to slickly produced recordings featuring Nashville Session musicians and has even led to Johnny Cash covering Oldham's song I See a Darkness. A prolific songwriter under the aforementioned names, as well as in his collaboration with Matt Sweeney, Superwolf, he's also appeared in critically acclaimed movies such as John Sayles' Matawan and the more recent, A Ghost Story. The first song Oldham chose as being formative for him was, It's a Long Way to the Top by Susanna and the Magical Orchestra. Getting right Getting stoned, Getting beat up Broken bone Getting high Getting took
2: I tell you folks It's harder than it looks it's a long way
1: to the top if you want to rock and roll. Um, so Suzanne, a long way from the top. It's I was in, uh, way and and I I just for some reason I gravitated towards midlife, meaning the middle of my life so far songs um, because I feel like music easy, is trans. Forming my existence on at least a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. Um, But these are three things that had significant repercussions that continue to echo uh, in my life now. Um, I was in Portugal, Lisbon, uh, Anna Nana, I think is the name of the record label distributor. um, And I was visiting and it was uh, run by Fred Sampson and uh, his brother, I think. And Fred now has left Portugal and left Ananana and and runs Drag City Europe out of London. He's a Portuguese-Dutch guy, super guy. And I was in this shop, I don't know, uh, probably early 2000s, I guess, maybe 2004, 2005, something like that. And we were talking about music, and I think he suggested, he said there was something that he thought I might like, and he played this put on this record um, called uh, uh, Melody Mountain uh, by Susanna and the Magical Orchestra. And he said, yeah, it's a woman uh, or, or a, a duo from Norway, a woman singer um, from Oslo and they uh, do all covers on this. And, and it, it, it opens with the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah. And Hallelujah, at that time, was not the song that it is now. Um, However, it's also not the song that it was 15, 20 years prior when I first heard it. Um, It was on the first... First time I bought a a new Leonard Cohen record was various positions in 1985 from a mail-order company called Face the Music that put out these big newsprint catalog, computer printout catalogs. And you call them up and say, I want this, this, and this. And I asked the woman... I said, what's up with this new Leonard Cohen record? Is it good? She said, yeah, I really like it. It sounds like an Italian wedding. And that wasn't necessarily like what I was looking for in descriptor of a Leonard Cohen record. But I ordered it, and it was bizarre. I don't know if you know the record. It was bizarre because it begins with, essentially, I think, Casio drum beats and and keyboard tones. And then um, a, a kind of, you know, best described, I think, is cheesy female chorus, and then his voice comes in really low and and soft-toned and thuddy and unlike anything we'd heard from Leonard Cohen up to that point. But for some reason, it became one of my favorite records ever. And and then when I think it was Jeff Buckley covered uh, Hallelujah, that was the first time, and I think John Cale did as well, um, the song began to take on a life of its own and one that I didn't necessarily appreciate just because there are certain musicians who own their material and there's something about their own delivery of it that makes it kind of unapproachable by others. I was all for Leonard Cohen making the royalty if he was making the royalty, but I didn't, it felt like people liked the idea of singing hallelujah again and again in a dramatic fashion. And indeed, I think that's what's carried the song. You know, regardless of what the content of the verses are, people like to say hallelujah over and over again and they and feel passionate about, about themselves and their performance. So even though it, didn't, it hadn't been on the TV talent shows yet, uh, I was dismayed mildly that that was the opening of this record. I thought, I don't really want to hear anybody sing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah except Leonard Cohen. But there was something intriguing about... The sounds and the presentation of the music and even the visual presentation, which I found later to be quite uh, a significant part of of Susanna and Susanna and the Magical Orchestra's records and CDs. Uh, So I kept listening, bought it, took it home, kept listening and got more taken by it and specifically more taken by their cover of uh, It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll which is an ACDC song. And despite, you know, when I was 10, my neighbors owning the record with the black squares over the eyes that had uh, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap on it, uh, and and thinking that was, and Big Balls, you know, thinking those were fun songs. I never, I wasn't the ACDC fan that some of my friends were. And some of my friends whose musical tastes, I hold in great uh, esteem, but i I've never... I, I love, through triangula- triangulation, I love ACDC. Uh, but this, all of a sudden, delivered this song, and it was just the beginning of my relationship to Susanna's voice and presentation. So, delivered this song and delivered the lyric, um, which is something... You know it's fun being a singer of lyrics because there's it's finding people who present a lyric and find an interesting lyric and or write an interesting lyric and then present it in an interesting way. It seems like it's always going to be in a needle in a haystack thing for the rest of my life. It just doesn't seem like something that people focus on Um, within, I guess, underground or experimental music or or music that's uh, ambitious uh, along those lines. I mean. I was listening today to a 15-minute dissection of a romantic ballad in the Disney movie Encanto and how it was structured lyrically and and musically and blew my mind that was great but but among you know my friends and people who uh, you know yeah listen to uh challenging music for some reason it seems like maybe because it's so vulnerable or I I'm not sure exactly why uh there's not an instrument in between the performer and the audience. Um, so I, I was a, I, I began to be drawn in and, and so drawn in to, you know, her talking about, I didn't know anything about her, her talking singing about the musical life as it's presented in this ACDC song. Uh, when she says things like, you know, getting high, getting stoned, uh, I don't know, ripped off, underpaid, um I'll tell you baby it's harder than it looks it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll and she doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be any irony in it which was also really wonderful uh it seemed deeply heartfelt uh, like an expression of without with also not complaining she wasn't complaining she wasn't saying oh woe is me but she was saying this is hard this is hard work and I'm making it be i'm telling you this in a beautiful way so that you understand I'm, i don't want to complain to you i just want you to understand that it's really hard um if you want to rock and roll uh it's a really long way to the top and and you got the sense that she was nowhere near the top you know <laughs> like near the bottom which is where i live uh and i and i like i i liked that as well just thinking like. I don't even want to get to the, I don't have no desire to get to the top, but just treading water at at this level is, is a daily challenge. Um, but yeah, but there's so much space as well as I, as I came to learn from listening to more and more of Susanna's singing and writing and recordings, um, this was a person, uh, whose voice, a very, very musical person. And I didn't know that because yeah she presents, all of these songs are presented very simply um, as this duo with her her partner in the magical orchestra, is a guy named Morten Kvenild, it's like Q-V-E-N-I-L-D, and I can't pronounce a Norwegian word on the best of days, and today's not one of the best of days, but it's, and I, I asked her, because now we're friends, I asked her, how do I pronounce Morten's last name? And she gave me some clues uh, in writing, but I, I'm not going to get it. Um, and I've even now I've played shows with the both of them and hung out with them, but I still don't know how to say his last name. Uh, but she is, uh, her, her delivery. It's, it's especially the first, there were kind of three records that came out in the mid two thousands, uh, that were, uh, it was Melody Mountain. Then the record before that called List of Lights and Buoys, which was the Suzanne and the Magical Orchestra debut record, which is a- astonishing and uh, yeah, it's uh, production wise, performance wise, song. They did a couple of covers. I think they did Jolene on that, which is fine. They did uh, my original choice for this was the song Who Am I, which I think is the first song on their first record, which is a cover of. I guess they learned it from Nina Simone, uh, like a live performance by Nina Simone. But it's a cover of a song by, I think, Leonard Bernstein, who wrote it for a musical version of Peter Pan um, that I I have not been able to find, like, contextually how the song fits in, because it's it's somebody questioning who they are in this world and talking about reincarnation. And uh, do you believe it? Uh, So, yeah. Maybe I'll come back as a mountain lion or a robin or a wren, a rooster or a hen or a fly. Oh, who am I? I don't know who that is. Is that Peter Pan? Is it Wendy? Is it Tinkerbell? I, I often think that it's Tinkerbell, but I don't I don't know. Um, but she, you know, she, you get this sense because the, the production is so wild, experimental and beautiful that there's a lot of consideration happening, even as her Vocal delivery is exceedingly, the choices that she's making are exceedingly simple and evidently um, quiet. Uh, So uh, like delivered close to the mic using the full capacity of her voice and range at a low dynamic level. Uh, So it's like, you know, when people talk about when somebody like Frank Sinatra talks about or or people talk about Bing Crosby and what Bing Crosby was and he was he was sort of the artist that took the piece of equipment the microphone and turned it into a musical instrument by instead by instead of singing out realizing you can do anything you want with a microphone uh in terms of the level of your voice and and he made he made recording a singing voice an intimate uh, activity so this is taking Bing Crosby's you know, huge advancement in in the evolution of s- singing popular songs to a, to a brand new, beautiful level that that I don't think anybody that I can think of um, had done quite quite with this fluency and capability. And so, yeah, it was really long way to the top. If you want to rock and roll, was was the and there's a Kiss cover on there called Crazy Nights, uh, which might might be a Kiss cover or might be. Maybe a Paul Stanley cover from one of those four solo records that came out in the early nineteen eighties, I think, or late nineteen seventies. Um, and then going, and then using that as the springboard to learn more about, you know, to to experience more of Susanna's musical world. Um, the three records with the magical orchestra. Oh, oh it, so yeah. And then at one point, I persuaded. Suzanne and the Magical Orchestra, Suzanne and Morton, to, to do some shows with us. And one of the shows included uh, a show at the residence of the US ambassador to Sweden in Stockholm, in his living room, because um, he was married to a woman from Louisville, Kentucky. So we had this in. And so they invited a bunch of folks, you know, artists and musicians from the Stockholm scene, I guess. And then it was just in this plush carpeted, beautiful living room, and this duo who rely very heavily even in their live shows on technology on front of house people and on microphones and then on sequencers and things like that. we were in this room and and nobody we none of us used microphones uh I don't think we used amplifiers either, and we did like we did a short set, and they did a short set we did a short set, and they did a short set, and they just prepared a uh, grand piano and you know by sticking things under the under the wires and and making it sound unlike a traditional piano and she sang and he played and it was it was one of those things where you know you're working on faith you know I'm listening and 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 investing my soul deeper and deeper into these records as I listen to them uh and then to sit there and see like with you know all crutches removed, not only did they still deliver an amazing performance, in fact they delivered one of the greatest and most memorable performances you know in 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 my life. And, and, and realizing like, okay, th- fuck, thank God because they they were they are they are the the thing that I dreamed that they might be you know. Uh, and, and so my relationship to Susanna and to her music, um, with and without Morton um it has been an, an extensive and and fulfilling and educational thing that you know that continues and I, I would imagine will continue through both of our lives. And so I'm grateful always for so many reasons to Fred Thompson for introducing me to the CD in the first place and then to Susanna and Morton for making all these things.
2: You know, it's interesting that Who Am I came up because one of our very first guests on the show, Wendell Patrick, uh, picked Nina Simone's version of that song. as one of his picks. Oh, wow. And he spent a lot. You know, he really uh, dug in talking about uh, why it mattered to him. He has a great story about it, which.
1: Did he talk about its origin? Did he know? I'll find it. Yeah. Did he talk about its origin at all?
2: But he has a great story that I recommend that you and anyone listening uh, go back and, and check out.
1: Cool. Yeah, and then on, on a sideline, in terms of Nina Simone, I always had a problem with Nina Simone. I never liked Nina Simone. She it I found her singing repellent. Uh and and it really I, I just couldn't stand it. And whenever, you know, people would put it on, I would think, why do you like this stuff? And it was the two the the one two punch that helped me completely change my whole point of view about Nina Simone to where now I, you know, she's a a deity. It was one. This song and asking Susanna finally. Well, where, you know, tell me about this song. Where'd you learn it? And she just said it from Nina Simone, and I was like, okay, okay. And then, uh, and then that documentary. What happened, Miss Simone? And because uh, one of the key things was, I never, I didn't know her history, and I didn't know that she was a pianist primarily, and so I was always listening to her as a singer, and I just thought, is she really like? Is this? is she a singer? But then I didn't realize that she was everything. Like, she was, you know, a ranger and, and, and that the piano, that the voice supported the piano as much as the piano supported the voice. And because I am always lyric and voice focused, I always thought, this is not a good presentation of this song lyrically if that's all that's going on. And then realizing that she's not a singer first and her singing ability has, her musical ability is not, present really in her voice her musical ability is present in her whole approach and specifically in her hands and her approach to the piano and the singing is is a part of it it's a way of delivering lyric but the musicality is not to be necessarily found there and then all of a sudden I was like okay and everything i hear now by her blows my mind
2: early on in your musical career you um you know of course you're uh, a singer-songwriter, you know, you write your own songs and sing them. But, you know, here and there you would cover, you know, sort of select um, other songwriters, you know, uh, John Langford, um, who's going to show up again here being one of them. Uh, in the last few years, well, increasingly, I think, and in, in as things went on, and, and especially here in the la- your last couple of projects, you're singing a lot of other people's songs. Uh, and I'm curious about that development and the kind of different challenge that that brings to you as a, as a, as a performer, you know, both in the studio and live. Yeah.
1: I let, I think a a huge part of a huge, I mean, writing songs has been challenging and something I started to get a handle on uh, in the, Late '90s, I, you know, I began to f- understand what I was doing a little, a little more. Uh, from the beginning, you know, I think being an interpreter of other people's songs in a parallel reality, ideal world, that would kind of be all I did, you know, and, and just be, uh, you know, like John Davidson, or uh, just be a singing entertainer. Um, but part of the reality in order to have a life in music, um, something that people began to understand decades ago is that in order to make a living, owning the mechanical, you know, owning, owning the publishing and uh, of the songs that you're singing is going to increase your paycheck. You know, so you're going to be, if you own the, all the songs on the record, you're going to get that royalty too. And a mechanical royalty comes prior to, advances being recouped. So if you want to make another record and be able to afford to make another record, what's your income stream? Well, you want to have, you want to try to write some songs so that the, so that you get that royalty. So that, you know, so you get, you know, you're not, you're not recouping and, and then, you know, and then you can afford to pay your rent or pay your mortgage and also afford, cause I've also, and you know, I've, I've paid for most of my own recordings since, since the very beginning. When I can't afford to, you know, I'll ask Drag City uh, to to pay for it. I haven't had to do that in a while, but it, but that means that every every penny that comes in is more important um, because I'm not, you know, because I'm counting on my own income to to finance the making of these records. And part of that is because every record is an experiment, and and if it fails, I don't want to think, well, I have to put this record out because they've spent all this money on it. You know, I can say. And it's only happened a couple of times, but it just feels like I don't even. You know, sometimes I don't even talk to Drag City about the record until it's done or almost done, and just say, "I'm." By the way, I'm making a record. That way, there's not that psychological pressure either. In recent years, I've been puzzled, dismayed, uh, deeply depressed, confused by. What is essentially what? Is, what stream, streaming music and what that's done to the listening experience and what's that's done to the creating experience, and so part of making, doing lots of you know I I can't remember now I think I've maybe done four full length records of other people's music plus a tour of another, uh, like we toured um, as the Babbler's playing Kevin Coyne and Dagmar Kraus. Uh, circa 1980, Virgin record, Babel. We just played that record from beginning to end. And and did the Merle Haggard record, the Mekon's record, the Everly Brothers record, the Susanna record. And part of it was just because, you know, royalties have mattered a little less in recent years because streaming is just criminal, essentially. Um, so who wants to, why make the effort, you know, to make, I mean, it, it's a lot of effort, you know, to make a song and to make a record. Um, So what would be the purpose of making a record in the past decade? And one of the purposes I found was, you know, I could, I could dive into the creative explorations of other artists. Uh, So like dive into Merle Haggard's work and find, find out, well, what do I love about him? What is What intrigues me about him? What satisfies me about him? What inspires me about him? Uh, And make a record of, of songs that sort of represent that, and at the same time try to employ certain recording techniques that I was aware that he had used, and at the same time, reaching out to audiences then and helping them as they're trying to navigate, unfortunately, uh, uh, too often with the, with the inhuman crutch of an algorithm, this, you know, s- ocean of, of music that they never had access to before and say, like, well, rather than give you a bunch of new stuff, I'm going to put these signposts up that point to other things that might help you navigate this crazy, you know, mass of, 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 of material that, that you never should have had access to at one, at one moment in your life. And now you have it every single day, all day. So maybe this will, you know, help you a little bit, make sense of things rather than, you know, just be, be you know, confused or puzzled or stymied by what you're confronted with.
0: The second song Oldham chose is essential to his formation as an artist was Ain't No Sunshine, as performed by Al Jarreau. Ain't no
1: sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime
2: She goes away. Wonder this time when she's gone.
1: Wonder if she. So the third song is. And I want. So is is Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. And, uh, And. And again, you know, like this is just a. I think people, even listening to your podcast, it's it's sometimes I find that people this depth of connection of you know what a song is, what it could mean, like I so so I this I'll 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 do like a little the intro to the story is uh, in fifth grade I would I was bused to a school in downtown Louisville my teacher I think one of her signature moves of her curriculum in fifth grade was to do a field trip to a a local asian market which mysteriously was called la pagoda i'm pretty sure it was on chestnut street and in this little block of three businesses which at the time was a camera store called schumann's click clinic with a beautiful neon sign of a camera something in the middle and then la pagoda later Things went, the fortunes of that little strip of businesses went downhill, and they were all three strip clubs. And in the late 90s, um, I was driving around downtown Louisville, visiting Louisville, because I wasn't living here, and uh, I thought, you know, well, you know, I have these memories of this place. I'm gonna go in, it was an afternoon, I was like, I'm gonna go in and look at this strip club. You know, wasn't a frequenter of strip clubs, Um, but I just thought I'm gonna. You know, it's open in the middle of the day and it looks seedy as hell. This this might be fun. So I went in and uh, I think there were two women working there, one dancing and one behind the the cash or counter bar. I think I had a beer, watched a dance, and then was pretty much ready to go. It wasn't that intriguing. Uh, but I was finishing my beer and a song came on and the place was, like I say, it was seedy. It was, you know, relatively depressing. Um, and I, uh, and the song came on and I knew the song. I recognized the song, but it didn't sound like I'd ever heard it before. Like, it, it didn't, it sounded new. And one of the first things I noticed was the strings that came in sounded like Mellotron strings, as opposed to real strings. And that, I was like, and I'd gotten to know the sound of Mellotron through working with Liam Hayes, who was the band Plush, who still is the band Plush, I think. And he plays Chamberlain's, and he introduced me to Mellotron's in person. And the first time I recorded with Liam, he he played the Mellotron, and, and I thought it was an incredible instrument. And so I hear these Mellotrons, the voice has a little slap on it, and it's Ain't No Sunshine when she's gone. I was just like, Well, I know I've heard this song. You know, I wasn't a Bill Weathers fan or anything, but it was just, you know, it's a popular song. And it was so intense and heavy and scary, you know. So I, you know, delayed my, uh, I said, what's the song? And for some reason, this strip club, the jukebox was behind the bar. And that's, you know, and, a, and the dancer would say, would go and pick her selections, like standing on the bar uh, and, and pick the selection. So she's like, I don't know what it is. I was like, well, can you find out? You know, I was blown away that she didn't know. What it was. She walked up, flips through the CD jukebox, and she says, it says Al Jarreau. And I was like, Al Jarreau? It says Al Jarreau. I was like, okay. And I wrote it down. And I was like, that's just wrong. Like, that's not Al Jarreau. Because I didn't know much about Al Jarreau, but I knew that everything I'd ever heard of him wasn't my kind of music. It sounded kind of clownish and, you know, smooth jazz, some, you know, some of the most unpleasant examples of scat, you can imagine, that kind of thing, you know. And this was intense and engaging and, and heavy and, and wild and, and beautiful. And again, this was late 90s. There's no internet. I think people say that probably on your show all the time, talking about the past. Uh, so I would just, you know, start to look around. I, every record store I would go in for the next few years, I would look in the Al section and never saw anything, never saw no sunshine. Couldn't find, you know, I would ask people about it, they they would just look at me like I was crazy. And then finally I was in New York, uh, living in New York in like 98, I think, or 99, I think 99. And we lived close enough to, I'm pretty sure it was HMV, like in, in down, maybe down Broadway. South of Houston significantly. And HMV had this wonderful policy of accepting all returns. You had like 14 days or maybe even a full month to, I think it was 14 days, to return anything. So I I started using HMV as a lending library, you know, because again, it was pre-internet and I was always wanting to get new music. So I would go there and buy five CDs and maybe return three of them a week later after listening to them. And at HMV, in the Al Jarreau section, sure enough, there was a CD, Al Jarreau. I don't even know if it... It had all these Bill Withers songs on it, so I got it. And it was Al Jarreau covering all these Bill Withers songs. Grandma's Hands, Ain't No Sunshine, Lean On Me, uh, Same Love That Makes Me Laugh, Makes Me Cry. And they're all incredible. They're beautiful. Like the vocal performances are amazing. The, the, the arrangements are insanely true to the bill withers while being completely different pieces of music. Like everything happens exactly as it happens in the bill withers. But like I say, it's Mellotron versus strings. It's a different voice and a different effect on the voice, probably a different microphone, you know, obviously it's not bill withers drummer or probably isn't bill withers drummer. Um, And it's, and it's amazing. And I start to cover same love that made me laugh, made me cry based on the power of, of that recording. Uh, So that, that was huge, but it also like as itself and as a record is a, an example of a, a genre of record that I've come to identify as like, I call it post-apocalyptic bunker records that sound like they were made like in the boy and his dog world, like the world has been destroyed and there are people underground creating culture to get themselves through and to reintroduce culture to whatever human population repopulates the earth. And this record, this Al Jarreau, Does Bill Withers record, I feel like, Is one of those. Another one is Bob Marley's "Soul Rebels," uh, produced by Lee Scratch Perry, and another one is uh, Roger Miller's um, "A Tender Look at Love." Um, And then, and then I try, you know, at at times, specifically with "I See a Darkness," tried to make a record that fits into that genre, Uh, so that it sounds, yeah, just crucially a part of. Human culture, but also essentially removed from human culture, and that there's an ominous quality to it that that tells of dastardly things in the past and potentially harrowing things yet yet to come. And another, some other things about this Algero record is that it was so hard to find, and if you search it right now. Um, which I did in preparation for this conversation. Just every once in a while, I forget that the internet exists, and I realize, oh, that's a mystery that I haven't looked—you know—bothered to try to look up in five or six years because the last time I did, there was nothing. I looked it up, and I can't find it. It—it's still in print. I don't think anybody owns the copyright, so I think anybody who has wanted to ever put this record out has put it out, and you can buy it in truck stops. You know, in the past when CDs were in truck stops, you can just buy it with different cover artwork great cover artwork, terrible cover artwork, different titles of the record, different years attributed to when it was released. So I don't know when it was recorded. I don't know if it was his first record, a middle, I have no idea. And there's nothing, all music, you know, and, and interestingly, you know, the Bob Marley's uh, Lee Perry records are the same way. Like they, they exist in all sorts of forms with the songs all because there, I think there's like three records worth of material that's, popularly available. It's African Herbsmen. Is that one of them? African Herbsman, Soul Rebels and Soul something. But the songs get mixed up on different records and so many bootleg copies of it. Uh, and also weirdly, the Roger Miller record Tender Look at Love has two completely different front record covers with the same back record cover that you can that you can find. Um, but and and you know people also review like these Al Jarrell records online and say, you know, eh, it's not so good, blah, blah, blah. And yet, it's been available for decades and people keep pressing it, you know, and somebody's buying it somewhere uh, because it c- continues to be available. And you can find it, you know, probably on YouTube and things like that. But it's, I don't know, that that also, there's no conclusion to to this part of, of what I'm talking about, but it's something about, like, you know, what is, what? I don't know, what is folk music or what, it, it's how, what the music is popular, but it's unowned. And it's great, you know, like, uh, now realizing that say, you know, the entire career of Bruce Springsteen was, you know, the the, the end result that the, his, his ultimate goal was to, you know, take off his costume and reveal himself as a Sony Music employee all along. And that every single Bruce Springsteen song is a commercial for Sony, you know, for Sony, like this Al Jarreau record will never be that. You know, it will always be a a piece of music that exists just because it's a piece of music that's good for whoever decides to put it out at that time and whoever decides to put it on at that time and listen to it. But it's, it's essentially, you know, the fantasy that people say, like, music should be free. Well, this music is kind of free and it is great. And that's totally fine. You know, it's, it's still huge and powerful and incredibly emotional and cre- incredibly musical, but it, uh, it kind of just belongs to all of us.
2: I, w- I was really curious to hear what you were going to say about this, because when, um, when, you know, you put it on your list and I went to listen to it, I was like, wow, this is kind of like, just almost like a Xerox of the original arrangement sort of, but Almost. Then again, not, yeah. because as you point out, it's, you know, very spare, like the Bill Withers records were, but different kind of spare and and pretty intense. Um, you know, just briefly poking around, you know, what I found was a 2008 CD where it's like half the Bill Withers record, I guess, and then half him singing Al Green songs, which can't be the way it was originally put out, oh, wow. although that would be worth no. hearing, too. Yeah, and I didn't hear that because cause,
1: cause I heard the you know I right, heard it right. in the late '90s um, so
2: yeah. But um, it it really brings up, and this is this kind of has come up on the show a couple of times, but it definitely comes up um, in conversation with with uh, family members and friends, and it came up this morning with my daughter, in fact, uh, unrelated to music, but something else, which is, um, you know, I spent a lot. I spent my whole life. So seeking out music, you know, like trying to find music that, you know, thrills me, excites me and that I find transcendent. And as I grew older, I also realized that I'd spent a great deal of my life dismissing a lot of music without really giving it a chance, just because in some way I perceived that it was or would be uncool without ever really listening to it or giving it a fair shot. Uh, and if you had told me that, you know, if I had just, if you'd given me an Al Jarreau from 2008 with a bunch of, um, of, uh, Bill Withers covers on it and said, you might like this, you know, I mean, if you said I might like this and, you know, you were my friend or you were, you know, uh, yeah who you are, I guess I would have said, Oh, well probably this is good then. But if I had like dug it out of a pile in a thrift store or something, I probably would not have given it a second look and just moved on to the next thing. Right. Because how could that possibly be good?
1: Yeah. I mean, it took, it took going in. Yeah. It took going into this strip club on a, you know, whatever Wednesday afternoon at three for me to give Algero the time of day. And I've given him much more time than, you know, uh, I have never found another Al Jarreau record that moves me in the least, except to turn it off. But that record is great. Well, there you go, Al Jarreau. Yeah, and, and it's and it's. I mean, that's and, and those things. I mean, an experience like that, like you say, you know, it's that was a, it's a big lesson. So that my, my mind and my ears are always open you know, and, and even hungry and, and then, and even expecting like, cause so often you run into people who are into music, whether they play it or not. And sometimes they'll say, you know, I just haven't heard anything I, that moves me recently. And I've never had that experience because I don't have, you know, I can look anywhere and I don't have, I'm not, fr- you know, free of judgment and I'm not free of prejudice, but there are certain limitations that, don't handicap me the way they handicap other other listeners, I, I've been made aware, you know, because I'm just like, you know, have, I had a, like I say, a revelatory 15 minutes this morning watching this YouTube video about the mysteries behind a song in the Disney movie, Encanto, which my uh, daughter is obsessed with. And I was just like, whole, you know, this is incredible. You know, like the use of musical triplets in this romantic ballad because, at one point it refers to th- some triplets who are in the movie so like you, the use of the musical form of triplets because it's referring to triplets so you know nobody's going to get that but it's in there anyway it's kind of exciting to, then I, you know you feel less guilty with your child watching this thing knowing that it's it's stuck in her head and she may have that aha moment at some point later in her life
0: ain't no sunshine which gone in this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away Anytime she goes away
1: Anytime she goes away
0: Anytime You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guest's essential songs. The final song Oldham chose as being crucial to him was Oblivion by the Mekons.
1: once again, yeah, this is a huge... Uh, in the late 1980s, I had a couple friends, I have a couple friends, uh, Steve Driesler and Britt Walford, who, and, and then Rich Schuler, uh, who were into the Mekons. And these are guys that I love very much, and I loved very much. And they were into the Mekons. And so often I would get in their car, And the Mekons would be playing and it just didn't register for me. I couldn't take it in. It would just, I would know, oh, this is the Mekons because I'm in their car. And they were always playing the Mekons. And I think I was, you know, in the process of leaving home and going out to actively explore the world at large and Because of their continued devotion to this band, the Mekons, I thought that I should make an effort. So I went over to Steve's house and taped all of his Mekons records. Uh, I think it was maybe three 90-minute tapes of, of Mekons music. And those were my musical companions for the next few months. And I just sort of only listened to the Mekons and that uh, that did it for me. You know, I, that like, that just, you know, that was my brainwashing um, to where my relationship to the Mekons became, you know, inseparable from my... Identity from my from my DNA, kind of like I think my daughter will probably be it. You know, she'll she'll hear the Mekons one day and just be like, "Oh, this is me," um, or "This is my daddy." Um, but again, one of the key because there's there's kind of three main voices in the and Mekons, Mekons from since uh, Fear and Whiskey 1983 to the present day, kind of three main voices, and that's John Langford, Tom Greenhall, and Sally Timms. Those are the the voices that you hear. And uh, Rico Bell sings a song here and there, and uh, but Sally, I don't know if this is true, but I, I think Sally, the lyrics that Sally would sing would tend to be the lyrics that were more. They kind of had they 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 made more overt sense. They they kind of had a maybe they told a story. Um, where the other the lyrics that the men would sing would sometimes be kind of uh, expressive, poetic, uh, symbolist, whatever. Um, but but Sally would, you know, choose. I don't know. I don't. I still don't know their writing process. I don't know who writes what. Um, so I don't know how it would be that Sally would come to sing a song. And she didn't. She wasn't on Fear and Whiskey. She wasn't a part of the Mekons then. She was on the next full length record, Edge of the World, and that's where Oblivion is. And Oblivion. Especially, you know, unfortunately, in different parts of my life, fear is a driving force, and there's and fear is mentioned in the song. Um, as as it is in, of course, uh chivalry with the line Fear and Whiskey kept me going. But Oblivion has a has a pretty clear, pretty beautiful lyric, delivered very very clearly by this beautiful voice uh that Sally Timms has. And um Yeah, like mockery and scorn, singing like smoke, stinging like smoke, knowing you're abandoned, lied about, betrayed age and ugliness. Is that an excuse? Drunk and afraid. You lost your chance, didn't have to be. Oh, and this beautiful overlapping of uh, where like she ends a a line and then maybe didn't have time to catch her breath and start it over. So you get the sense that it's an overdub on another take that begins the next line uh, on on the end of the syllable. Um, Good morning, midnight, a bottle of gin. Uh anyway so the song and, and then and then a, a just a, a a gorgeous chorus that that could fit anywhere i mean anybody could sing the chorus it's like you know uh you've always known and always remember then you forget you've always known so much so that i still i've never had an aha moment where where that chorus resonates it's just it's just cool it's just catchy you know it could be a soap commercial all the verses are, are the lyrical strength of that song. And the, that's just sort of the hook. And it's literally a hook. It catches, you know, and so that was easily, that was, that was, you know, a gateway drug into the Mekons of Sally Tim's voice. So whenever Sally sang a song, um, the, the pre-Mekons me recognized music uh, and and helped introduce the pre-Mekons me to the post, to, to the fully Mekon, uh, what is it, Mekonographied person that I that I am today. Um, and so that enchanty, which is a sort of a sea shanty song um, that has a yo and a ho, and there's one thing I know. We're not in the same boat at all. Again, a catchy little chorus. Um, and the sail off the edge of the world, yeah, in, into the the world of the Megan. And 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 that that it was an auspicious beginning because little did I know, but you know, we were on the eve of uh, the release of Mekon's Rock and Roll, and, whoo, you know, like that, uh, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Just the, the, you know, the experience of listening to that for the first time, and and I guess, I think I happened to get a maybe it came in the record stores first, a blast first, a an import copy of of the of the vinyl that has two extra songs that weren't on the major label A and M uh, release here in the United States, two great songs as well. Um, and digging into Like the Mekon's music is so rich It's insane, you know And, and uh, in ideas uh, In references um, It's just, it's a great adventure uh, So And we could go anywhere with that but, but one reason I thought of that specifically So Good Morning Midnight A bottle of gin, right? Do you know what Good Morning Midnight is? Okay, so i didn't either, and so year so th- that was in eighty eight eighty nine something like that um, so there's so much you know mekon stories to to tell between then and and two thousand six two thousand and five two thousand and six but in December of two thousand and five I was in Iceland making a record that I was calling uh like the the working title was Y W A I, which is the name of a song on the record, and and means water in Hawaiian. Because my mother was born in Hawaii. At one point, I in 1999, I was I was just like I gotta go and just see you know the house where she was a little girl is still there. I gotta just see it. And it didn't have high hopes. Although my fascination with Polynesia was strong, triggered by the Mekong song. Sometimes I feel like Fletcher Christian off They're so good at hurts record. Uh, which is again, I mean, uh, like, yeah. uh, so like we won't go into Polynesia, but we'll go into, so it was going to be called why we we tracked it in, uh, in Iceland in December. And then I came back to Kentucky for Christmas and then I was going to go back to mix. And when I was in, uh, Kentucky for Christmas, um, there was, they'd opened, I don't know if they still do this, but in the mall, somebody had occupied a, an empty store to sell remainder overstock books for holiday shopping. And I saw on a table a book called Good Morning Midnight. And, you know, in my mind immediately, it's, you know, the Mekons. I am I'm hearing the song. I'm hearing Sally's voice sing Good Morning Midnight. So I look at it and it looks kind of interesting by a guy named Chip Brown. And I buy it spend Christmas with my family, then go back to Iceland to mix with uh, Valgir Sigurdsson, who recorded the record. And as, you know, usually in mixing sessions, I'm sitting on the couch trying to find something to do while the engineer is doing lots of things, you know, and just waiting for something to catch my ear so that I can say, oh, no, 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 we need to move in a different direction, or, or that sounds great. Or... And so I'm reading this book, which is about a guy named Guy Waterman, who was uh, many things. He was a speechwriter. He was a jazz pianist. I, th- I think he was a pianist. He was a p- either a pianist or a drummer, but I think he was a pianist. And then, I think, notably among the ho- homesteading community, he was he was sort of he's sort of like a, a big figure in the homesteading world, like like living off the grid. He and his wife, uh, first I think they were in Maine, and then they moved to. Uh, New Hampshire or Vermont, and and created, uh, I think, a very significant um, model for for off the grid off the grid living. And he was also a mountaineer. and And the book begins with uh, more or less like Lawrence of Arabia, or his his death, which is a death by suicide. He, at age, in in, in his later years, maybe late seventies maybe early 80s, he goes up into the mountains with a light parka in 10 degree weather, lays down and waits for, uh, waits to die by through exposure. So this guy, <clears throat> Chip Brown, wants to explore the motivation behind such a human's taking his own life in such a way. And it's, uh, you know, I'm not a, I do not romanticize suicide. And Chip Brown made a point that that's not what he was trying to do. He, he really, he wanted to know. Uh, and it's a thin line. And he addresses that a few times over the course of the book. Um, we were mixing uh, a song that I called, at the time, Letting Go of a Little Girl, which was kind of a little narrative song Loosely based on a memory I had of a friendship with a little girl back in first grade, uh, in the, you know, mid seventies. And at one point, she disappeared. You know, she her family moved away. Her dad got transferred or whatever. Uh, and so, in the song, I create the the character has this relationship with this young girl. Eventually, the singer has children. And at one point they disappear into the snow. In the song, they disappear and are, aren't to be seen again. They they're run off and play laughing and, and they're kind of gone forever. Uh, while we're mixing this song, I'm reading this Good Morning Midnight book. And Guy Waterman had two sons who are also mountaineers and out- outdoors people. And we're mixing this song, and his two sons, in their 20s, separately, totally different parts of the world, um, each... That's how they died. They disappeared into the snow, uh, like on a mountaineering expedition, never to be heard or seen again. Now... So that was weird. Right? Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm very competitive. <laughs> this is drawing me into the mix of, of the record and the whole experience. At the same time, Guy Waterman's wife, his father-in-law, his wife's dad, I guess, is an Emily Dickinson scholar. Emily Dickinson is responsible for the line, Good Morning Midnight. That's from an Emily Dickinson poem. Um, and he's I think my impression is that he's sort of principally responsible for delivering to us as readers the Emily Dickinson poems in the way that we know like to maybe reinserting the the unique idiosyncratic um punctuation capitalization things that I think maybe in f- or, or earlier releases of her work had been thought of as mistakes perhaps uh And and it adds, you know, huge layers to her poetry. The uh, letting go. Yeah, so the letting go. Uh, Then there's a line um, in an Emily Dickinson poem about freezing to death. Uh, Using a metaphor, freezing to death. First the chill, I think it goes. First the chill and then the stupor and then the letting go. So they talk about that in the book, right? At the time, the song that I'm working on is called Letting Go of a Little Girl. So that was, again, kind of funny. Um, I changed it then to Then The Letting Go, that's the name of that song. And I decided over the course of the next couple of days to change the name of the record from Why to The Letting Go. Um, at some point, uh somebody after the record comes out, somebody writes that the uh, um, that the record must be a record about, you know, hugely influenced by Emily Dickinson and about Emily Dickinson because they name a couple of things, letting go, something else. And then the last song in the record is called "I called you Back. Apparently, I learned from this person writing and later I visited it to see it's true on Emily Dickinson's tombstone, her epitaph is called back. So it's the last song of the record and it's Emily Dickinson's. After I started making records in the early nineties, I lost track of new Mekon's records for a number of years, about 10 years. And, um, at this point, and then, and then I started listening back to them and I, I realized that the Mekons also have a song called only you and your ghost will know. And the chorus is first the chill and then the stupor, then the letting go only you and your and your ghost will know. So we finished the record in, you know, in December of 2006, Uh, I move out to California. And one of the first things I do is go to shoot a video in a California for the song Cursed Sleep. And while I'm there, over the weekend of June 6th, my father suddenly has a heart attack and dies. I get a phone call, I'm like wearing this bird costume and it's early morning. Uh, 10 years later, and this is just to to say like, this is, I don't know, because because of oblivion, you know? Good morning, midnight, right? Just this weird connection. So like um, on a Saturday morning, 2016, there's a little park in front of our house that I uh, used to help maintain. And so I was on this grade of ivy, uh, a hill of ivy um, that's about an 80 degree angle. And I'm, I'm pulling invasive species. And this woman comes up And she, you know, she's real kind of creepy, ghosty. And she's like, you, she's like, how's your mom? And my mom at the time was in the middle of an Alzheimer's journey, which began when my dad died pretty much and ended in January of 2020. So, you know, I said, she's okay. And she said, well, you know, she used to come in. I work at the library and she used to come in all the time. And she always would special order books and, And she's like, I remember one time specifically, she came in, she was looking for this Emily Dickinson poem. And I'm standing there on this 80, you know, I'm just like in the middle of pulling things. And she's just trying to talk to me. And I'm thinking, first, I'm like, why is this woman trying to talk to me? But then it becomes a little fascinating. And I say, well, what Emily Dickinson poem? And she says, uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called. It, It goes, uh, Um, After great pain, a formal feeling comes, the nerves sit ceremonious like tombs, the stiff heart questions, was it he that bore and yesterday or centuries before? Uh, And it goes on, I can't remember, but then it says, you know, as freezing persons recollect the snow, first chill, then stupor, then the letting go. And this was on June 6th, 2016, which was the anniversary of my father's death, you know? So again, what the hell and you know it's it's kind of a thread that may begin other places but I can trace it immediately back to the Mekons and Sally Tim singing the line Good Morning Midnight and beginning this web of connection you know that just got crazy and complicated over the years and it's one of the many reasons I love music and you know lyric music so much
2: you stole it from yourself moving from somewhere to somewhere
0: else. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com.